0: Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We believe that the gospel really is good news, that the blood of Jesus worked, and that Jesus meant it when he said, it is finished. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God, forgiven and free, clean and close, holy and beloved, blessed and made new. If God is doing something special in your life, we would love for you to tell us about it. You can simply email us at infolifejourneyva.com. At One of the reasons we are able to provide these weekly podcasts is because of the generosity of people like you. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com.
1: If you're here for the first time, I'm not Walt Davis. Um, Walt is preaching in Waynesboro this morning to the church plant that Richard leads. He was very, very excited to be there. So, we're in a series called The Hurt and the Healer, and Walt asked me if I'd give my testimony this morning. Some of you have heard parts of it. Um, uh, he said, uh, tell them your story about your journey from Pharisaicalism to freedom. And, um, uh, my response is, "I hope I've made a journey from that. I don't know. there's still a lot of Pharisee in me. I wish there wasn't. but I grew up in a very strict um, um, Southern Baptist Church, very very conservative, very I went to a very conservative Bible college seminary, and uh, well, it's hard to get that performance mentality out of your soul. Um, I do have uh, some advantage in that it's been a long time, but um, it stays in there. I'm, I'm very religious by nature, and um, I'm going to tell you a little bit of that story. I'm not usually nervous. I've spoken so many times uh, through the 40 years I've been in the ministry, but I'm actually nervous this morning. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm, I'm having trouble talking about this. I've only told my testimony a few times and never quite the way I'm going to give it to you this morning. It's a very personal thing. It's hard to admit to some stuff, uh, and, it's, and it's hard to, um, to talk about what the Lord's doing in me because He's still doing it. He's still working on me. I am a long way from complete um, uh, in the flesh. Praise God, I'm perfectly complete in the Spirit. All of us are who put our faith in Him, um, but, that, but there's still a lot of journey left to do. Um, Another reason, I just want to say this as part of my testimony. Also, those of you who know me know that I'm very much an introvert. I, you could put me in a corner of a room somewhere with a book, and you'd never know that I was there unless you just happened to look in my direction, and and I'd be content doing that all day. My wife, I married a, a very much an extrovert, and um, I used to think I was an in, I was an extrovert until I married my wife, and uh, wow, uh, I'm not even close to being an extrovert. Um, I, I, don't, I hardly exist uh, compared to her. Um, but uh, anyway, I'm going to tell you a little bit about um, my story this morning. Uh, it's, it's not about what I've done or did not do. It's not about how smart I was to choose Jesus over sin. It's not about a deep desire I had to be a great Man of God, uh, I, I don't have an amazing testimony of trying to work out my salvation over many years. Um, no, I, I actually enjoyed sinning, and um, I didn't do anything to find God. Uh, my testimony is a story of God's love reaching out to me no matter what I did to deny Him, both before and after I became a believer. Um, I couldn't make Him go away. I tried. Um, yeah, I, I actually tried to make him go away, and, and I, I couldn't. I, I wasn't really a drowning teenager who called out to him to rescue me. I was not a young man dying in my sins who looked up and asked him to save me. No, I came to realize that I was dead, but it was much later. I came to realize I was dead in my trespasses and sins. There was nothing I could do to save, to say, uh, to save myself. Um, I was dead. Dead men don't have any part in their resurrection. Uh, Jesus Christ reached down of his own accord and touched my lifeless soul and raised me from the dead. It was after he touched my life that I put my faith in him and accepted his salvation. And what God has done for me, he's also done for all of you. So there's nothing really unique about this story except my journey just happens to be a little different than yours, and all of ours is unique. I grew up in the old part of Westlake, Louisiana, population 4,500 when I was growing up there, and 4,500 today. It hasn't grown or shrunk. or I mean, I guess people have left, and the same amount has come in. I looked it up uh, just last night to see what the population was. Uh, it's the same as it was when I was a kid. Um, it's a suburb of Lake Charles, Louisiana, which is roughly the size of Lynchburg. Um, west Lake is located on the west bank of the Calcasieu River, just north of the lake. I grew up in a home about 100 feet from the bank of the Calcasieu River, which was about 500 feet wide at that point. As a child, I, and I didn't know this at the time because everybody was equally poor, but we were poor. I mean, I remember every year before school started, going and getting a pair of shoes. One pair of shoes. That's all I had all year long. And there were years when we didn't go get a pair of shoes because the one that I had still worked. Um, And we just didn't get anything else. Um, I I was poor for another reason, or at least I I know I was poor now looking back for another reason, and that is because there were holes in our floor. We could see the ground underneath. uh, And in fact, there were holes big enough in my grandmother's house across the street from where I grew up that the dog could come in and go out through it. They, these, were up on, these were up on piers. That's the way you did it back in those days, or at least in that area, because when the river rose, you didn't want it to get into your house. So you'd, you'd uh, build up some. So we had a crawl space under the house. Uh, actually, in some houses, it was a walk space. Um, but not in ours. Um, As a child, I would look out from my living room window to see how high and how hard the river was running, and I knew when and where the fishing would be the best. Uh, I had my own nine-foot aluminum boat that my dad gave to me when I was 10 years old. My best friend and I would be out in that boat nearly every day after school, and often all day Saturday paddling to our best spots in the river to fish and run our trot lines Tugboats pushing barges loaded with coal or chemicals or some other freight would navigate the river several times each day by our house. My dad taught me at 10 years old how to time our river crossings in my little boat in such a way as not to get in trouble with those passing barges because the tugboat captains would never see us. We were just too tiny, and those barges and the tugboats were way too big. But it never occurred to us or to my parents that we might be a little too young to be doing this. Uh, We were 10, my best friend and I, and we couldn't wait every day to get out there. We didn't fish for sport. We didn't really think of it as sport. We didn't hunt for sport. We fished and hunt to eat. And uh, that's what we did um, down in uh, southern Louisiana, just about a half an hour from the Gulf Coast. Um, As far back as I can remember into my childhood, I had a religious streak. And as with many kids growing up, I had my own concept of what God was like. My earliest memories of grappling with God are from the age of about seven or eight. I remember laying in my bed in a room I shared with my younger brother and not being able to sleep. My heart would be beating hard. I'd lay awake for hours at night and imagine shadows and movements in my room in the dark corners. It would so frighten me that sometimes I'd wake up my younger brother to see if he could look and see if he saw ghosts, I was convinced that ghosts and demons were there in my room and that they could harm me and that God had something to do with controlling them. I didn't know what it was, and I'm not sure where I got these ideas from, but I formulated them anyway. I also remember as a child laying in bed at night and trying to imagine what God would be like. Um, is he old? Can he hear my thoughts? Does he like people? Does he like me? Um, I heard somewhere about hell. So I remember thinking at night, laying there, I had a father and a mother, but my relationship was mostly with my dad, who did a lot of, we, we did a lot of stuff together, uh, hunting, fishing, um, all kinds of outdoor stuff. But my mom worked. She was an accountant, and she's the one that really <laughs> made the money. Um, uh But I remember asking the Lord, probably eight or nine, is my dad going to go to hell and burn forever because he smokes and drinks beer? Does God really hate that so much that he's going to do that to him? I just remember thinking that, asking that question. And I also remember asking God if he really hated dancing. I used to love going to the community center with my family, and we danced to Zydeco with my cousins until someone told me one day that God hated that. I don't remember who it was or, or where it came from or what that person was thinking. I just remember, why would God hate that? I mean, we're having fun. But it affected me, and it stayed with me. Did, did God not like fun? Did he not like laughing? I pictured him as a stern old man sitting up in heaven with a big crown on his head and a white robe, and he was all-powerful, but he was bored because he didn't like fun stuff. That's how I pictured him. And so because he was bored, he spent all day just watching me and, and people around me just waiting for us to do something wrong. Not waiting for us to do something right, waiting for us to do something wrong. And I could picture him hearing my thoughts. So I was afraid to literally think of certain things. I was afraid because it might not settle good with him. He was always disappointed with me. I just couldn't get my act together good enough to please him. When I was 11 or 12 years old, for some reason I still don't understand because I've asked my parents this recently, and they don't remember why. But for some reason, my mom and dad decided that our young family just needed to start going to church. Now, I didn't know anybody who went to church. None of my dad's family, none of my cousins, none, none of the people I hung out with went to church. So when they decided to go to church, I literally had no concept of what it was we were about to go do. So we went, and I was the oldest of four. My my younger, my youngest, my the youngest in our family is my brother, and he was four years younger than me. So I was the oldest of four, and he was four years younger. You can do the math. Mom and dad had four kids really fast. Um, all of my dad's brothers and cousins were straight up foul mouth heathens, and all their children, my cousins, were following in their footsteps. Dropping out of high school, doing absolutely nothing to prepare for the future except maybe to do petty thievery, um, some of them in fact had already had a record with the local law enforcement by the time I was twelve, and they were roughly the same age, um, or a little younger. So my mom convinced my dad that if they didn't do something to separate us from that path, my siblings and I were headed in the same direction. And that's the best reason I come up with why they decided we need to go to church. And I remember the day my dad stopped smoking. He caught me with one of his cigarettes walking around in the backyard. It wasn't lit. I didn't even know you are supposed to light it. And I was walking around with it just doing like him, kind of letting it hang from my lip, you know, and trying to be cool. And, and he saw me with it, and he stopped. Dad stopped smoking that day. Um, and I won't tell you what he did to me, but I took me a few days to recover. Um, The pastor of this old church was an old gentleman who was the original founder of the church and had been there for about 40 years. They probably ran 50 or 60 in Sunday school. That old pastor retired about a year after we started going there. And the church was too small and too poor to hire a full-time pastor to replace him. So they decided to hire a 20-year-old college student as their part-time pastor. I was, I think, about 13 at the time. I have no idea if the church knew what they were getting themselves into when they brought in Steve and Susie Bennett in as their new pastor and wife, but it would prove to be life-changing for me and for many others in Westlake. Steve was a dynamic speaker. When he stood up behind the pulpit, it was like he was on fire I had never seen anything like him, and to this day, I still think he is one of the, if not the most dynamic speaker I know of. I was captivated by his preaching. I didn't understand what he was talking about, but I was captivated by his, how dynamic he was, how powerful his presence was. He was 20, and he just captivated the audience. I remember the first few Sundays he was there, there were only a handful of us there. A lot of people stopped going to the church when the old pastor retired. There, were, there couldn't have been more than 20, Steve's first Sunday. But within a year, this church, I'm going to guess, held two, 200 people maybe if we just packed the pews. Within a year, we were putting chairs in the aisles because it couldn't, cap, it couldn't hold everybody. But here's the best part because he was 20, he identified more with us young people than he did with the with the adults. And so he also became our youth minister, the pastor and youth minister. He was part-time. He was going to school full-time. Um, but he became our youth minister, and we began to meet with him and probably had 40 to 50 people coming to the youth group every Saturday night to spend time with Steve because he was just as much fun to us young people as he was an amazing preacher to the adults. Because of Steve's influence in my life, I became a believer in 73, the age of 15. And I immediately decided I wanted to be just like him. I wanted to be a preacher. I wanted to pastor a church. I wanted to be the youth minister. I wanted to do it all. Steve preached Sunday morning. This is back in deep south in Louisiana in Southern Baptist Church. He preached Sunday morning. He taught Sunday school. He led training union, if any of you Southern Baptists remember that. He preached Sunday night. We had a service Sunday night. And then he preached Wednesday night in the prayer meeting. And then he led us in the youth group. And he all did all that part-time while he was going to school full-time. I wanted to be just like him. I thought, wow, this guy is amazing. So after I graduated from high school, I enrolled at East Texas Baptist College in Marshall, Texas. It's now East Texas Baptist University. It's about three and a half hour drive from Westlake. And my first year in college was wonderful. I was the first cane that any of us know of that went to college. In fact, I was one of the first to graduate high school. But I was the first one to go to graduate from college. My brother later became the first one to graduate with a master's degree, which I still don't have and probably never will. I I take classes from time to time at Liberty online, but it'll probably never happen. I just don't have time. Um, So I'm happy to share that with him. But uh, man, I love that first year in college. Um, That's where I met Dr. Atkinson. He's the one who told me uh, t- taught us about the story of the New Testament, the story of the early church. And it's profoundly affected me to this day. What I didn't understand at that time, but I, looking back, I know it now, my Christian life was already in crisis. And I'm going to try to explain it like this. Um, first of all, I leaned heavily on Brother Steve. Um, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was getting a lot of my energy from him. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. I was taught that a person is saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and that nothing can take your salvation away from you. So that's a pretty solid gospel and a safe environment for new believers to grow up in, right? Well, I soon learned that what my experience of salvation did was get me in the door of the church. Now, fellowship with God, fulfillment as a Christian, overcoming sin in my life, these all came at a price that I had to pay. Jesus got me in the door. Now it was up to me to really become a Christian, that who lived like a Christian. So in those first years after becoming a believer, I spent as much time as I could with Brother Steve and reading every book that he recommended. For years, I gave myself fully to the disciplines of being a Christian prayer, Bible study, church attendance, tithing, witnessing, etc. And I want you to know that in my late teens and early 20s, I worked hard at this thing called being a Christian. I read my Bible every morning and every evening, I memorized Scripture, I memorized entire passages of Scripture. I gave my tithes to the church. In fact, I, I just thought, you know what, I need to give more than 10%. And so I did. I was there for every service and event our church had. I devoured every Christian book and Christian ministry cassette tape I could get my hands on. When I was in Bible college, my room with my roommate was known as the library. We were my roommate was just as bad as I was, or close to it. We we had every book every book that I'd ever bought up to that time, and, and I bought a lot of them, um, and every cassette tape, I never got rid of any of them. I kept listening to them over and over again. We had them all, and young preacher boys from all around the dorm would come and borrow them. Uh, thank God most of them never came back, um, and they just kept start going around, and we finally cleared it up and got rid of most of that stuff. But I still have a lot of my books from those days. And then when I married Donna, Um, she came with a lot of books too. So we've got an entire hallway in our house that's nothing but books on both sides of the hallway. Um, And we probably should throw most of them away because we're never going to read them again. Um, But I read about great men of God who spent hours every day praying. So I tried to do that. I read how Charles Finney could just stare. Now, if some of you guys have read some of these old books, you know what I'm talking about. Charles Finney could just stare at a sinner on the street, walking down the street, and that man would fall to his knees repenting. I read of the incredible short but full life of Robert Murray McShane. That's one of the books that Brother Steve told me to read. Robert Murray McShane once said, I think I can say I have never risen a morning without thinking how I could bring more souls to Christ. I had read about praying John Hyde as well. John would spend whole days and nights in prayer so that he was also called the man who never sleeps, even forgetting to eat. And then there was E.M. Bounds books. I read all of E.M. Bounds books. I must have read Power Through Prayer a dozen times in my early Christian life. This quote from the book affected me profoundly and still, still affects me. God's plan is to make much of the man Far more of him than of anything else. Men are God's method. The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. I'll never forget that. I remember Brother Steve preaching that. These books were what I ate, I drank, I slept over. I was determined to emulate these men and be the greatest man of God I could be. I remember one of my professors at Criswell Bible College saying, if you have a choice of buying a good book a good biography christian biography are eating by the book i'll never forget him saying that and i lived by that that's what i did and i read voraciously <clears throat> but all was not right within me i'd go out with church groups and pass out tracts and i would attempt to put myself in positions where i would be one on one with strangers in an elevator or a hallway, or a metro seat, so I could talk to them about Christ and attempt to lead them to faith. But I struggled with insecurity the whole time. I'd force myself to rise early in the morning to pray, but more often than not, I'd fall asleep within minutes. And then I'd feel guilty all day. I secretly struggled inside with doubts about my salvation and secret sin. When I'd ask my pastor or other church leaders about how to overcome my doubts, and the sin in my life, the answer was pretty much always the same. Take it to the Lord in prayer, Ricky. Ask the Lord to show you the answers in the Bible, Ricky. Pray for more faith, Ricky. In other words, they didn't really have answers either. I know that now. I didn't know that then, but I know that now. Later, the answers became a little more pointed. Your sin is separating you from God, Ricky. You've got to stop. You will never lose your salvation, Ricky, but you have lost your fellowship with God. He cannot live where sin dwells. Ricky, you must repent of your sin and beg forgiveness. God is faithful to return when He knows your heart is sincere. In fact, I confess to God often, and I did radical things in an attempt to cleanse my heart, even to the point of calling people from my childhood to ask forgiveness of things they had no memory of. I got more than a few silent treatments on the phone. People just thought, that what? At this time, I also began to think, well, maybe God's testing me. Maybe he wants to see just how committed I really am. So while in Bible college in Marshall, Texas, and then later in Dallas, I began to hang out, and this was in, very uncomfortable for me to do and very hard to do, but I began to hang out with the most aggressive student evangelists at the school, hoping maybe that would rub off on me. We did some things back then that make me cringe today when I think about them. We visited massage parlors, stripper clubs with Bibles and tracts in hand. We preached to anyone who would stop long enough to listen to us. While attending Criswell Bible College in Dallas, we literally, every week, what they called Encounter Missions, we literally rolled a pulpit that had wheels on the bottom of it into downtown Dallas. You could just see a stream of preacher boys walking down the, hall, the, uh, hall, the um, sidewalks into downtown Dallas where the metro stops were, and we'd mount that pulpit, we'd, we'd set it up, we'd mount it with our big old black Bibles, and it had a little stool on it, and so you'd be a little bit higher than everybody else and preach for 10 minutes at a time and they couldn't go anywhere they're waiting on the bus they had to listen and i remember thinking to myself god's gotta be happy with me now i mean who else would do this for him um i participated in these things believing that god would be impressed with my dedication And that he'd honor me with power from on high the way he'd given it to Robert Murray McShane, the way he'd given it to Charles Finney and to others. The truth is, I was never comfortable with it. And I never would have done it on my own. I did it because I did it with a group. And I wonder now today, at the time I thought I was the only one who was really struggling with this. But today I wonder if all of them have the same testimony, looking back on that. I began to be afraid that I wasn't one of those few good men that God was looking for. In my early 20s, I left Bible College and took over as pastor of a small Baptist church in southwest Louisiana. After two years of hard work in that community, I left that church with over 100 new members, but I was so exhausted that I was in danger of having a nervous breakdown was 23 years old. My body and soul were spent, and as much as I wanted it to give me a sense of peace knowing that God would be pleased with my efforts, I never got that peace. None of the disciplines were bringing peace to me. In fact, I began to feel desperate about my relationship with God. I remember, and this is one of those things that's hard for me to admit to, but I remember shortly after leaving that church, wondering, to myself, of course, if God really was real. I I began to wonder if if this religious thing was just all a big hoax, the worst hoax ever perpetrated on man. (sighs) Over and over again, I did what us Baptists do. I walked down the aisle of whatever church I was in on Sunday morning and I rededicated my life. But after years of my best efforts, I was burnt out, and I knew it. I didn't have a relationship with God. I didn't, I didn't even know who God was anymore. I, I only knew how to do what I thought was obedience. For me, God was the stern, unspeaking ruler of the universe, and I was an unknown and unappreciated servant who worked as hard as he could but would never be recognized and never know if what I did was enough to please Him. I didn't know God as a loving Father. God was my taskmaster. I don't know if you can relate to any of this. I wonder if you can relate at least to some of it. I was a young preacher when my Uncle Felder fell ill with lung cancer. He had been a career military man who became a believer around the age of 40. He decided to take an early retirement from the military and become a minister. He pastored a church in Illinois for nearly 20 years before moving back to Louisiana to retire from the ministry. I felt a kinship with him because he was the only other person in my extended family who was in the ministry. So I went to see him during his last days of hospice at his home in Westlake. His wife and children, my aunt and cousins, were with him. I had just recently uh, left the uh, little Baptist church I was pastoring And was getting ready to move up to Maine. But uh, in the interim, I went and visited him. He could barely speak. Um, And when he did, it was in a whisper. At one point while I was visiting, my uncle Felder asked me to come closer so he could talk to me. He told me that he had worked hard for 20 years for God. He said he gave the ministry all that he had. He poured his life into his congregation. He took all the abuse and experienced all the heartaches and disappointments that were dished out to him without ever raising his voice in anger. And then he said, I'm not sure it was enough. Now, I wasn't sure what he meant by that, so I asked him to explain. And he said essentially this I don't know if it was enough to please my God and my Savior. I don't know if it was enough to get me inside the pearly gates. Well, I was stunned. I thought I was the only one that had those kind of doubts. Saints, if it is your effort that you're relying on to get you inside the pearly gates, it's never going to be enough. It is never going to be enough. I told you a few minutes ago that my Christian life went into crisis mode during my first year in Bible college. I think I really get what E.M. Bounds was saying when he wrote, God is not looking for better methods. He's looking for better men. I, I think I really understand what he's saying. I understand and agree that the church is not about programs and methods. It's about people. But I want you to hear something. This, this, this is important to me. Better men is not what God's looking for, or better women. He's not looking for better people. It's what the Marines are looking for. God's not looking for better men. He's looking for broken men and broken women. He brought in the law to reduce us to dust. He wants us to come to the end of ourselves so that we know without doubt of our utter dependence on Him. In the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul makes it clear that God does not fit neatly inside our religious box. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame those who think they've got it figured out. He chose what's weak in the world to shame those who are strong and can do it all. It took what may have been a nervous breakdown to bring me to the place where I could finally admit to my limitations because it was so utterly important to me that I could do this thing called the Christian life. For most of the time, I was pastor of this small country church in southern Louisiana. I worked a full-time construction job as well. That's what I grew up. My dad did construction. It's what I knew at the time. And the church was so small and so poor that they could only pay me $400 a month. And even, what's that, 40 years ago? That, it, almost 35 years ago, we'll say. Even then, that wasn't enough, all right? That wasn't enough to pay my bills and feed me, so I worked construction to make up some money while I served as pastor. My typical day went something like this. Rise at 4.30 to get dressed and shaved. Arrive at the diner in town to have breakfast, read the newspaper, before jumping in the car to drive about an hour to the construction site. During that hour as I drove, I'd pray through my prayer list for the people in my church and other things, needs that had been raised. Almost without fail, my mind would wander, and I rarely made it through the whole list. And this, of course, just added to my guilt and frustration. I worked a full eight-hour day with my crew, beginning at 7 a.m., and Getting off around 3.30, we usually wait 20 or 30 minutes for the, the parking lot to clear out well enough so we could, get, we could leave. Uh, most days, I'd listen to a sermon of one of the, my favorite preachers on the cassette tape as I drove home. Most evenings were scheduled with meetings with church members or deacons or visiting the sick or knocking on doors to introduce myself. When I'd finally get home for the night, I had to prepare for church services. We had a morning and evening service. I taught Sunday school just like my pastor did, Brother Steve. I led training union. I preached on Wednesday nights. I was just like Brother Steve, except I don't know what he was going through, but I was burnt to a crisp. After I'd been at the church for nearly two years, one morning, I could not get up out of bed when my alarm went off. I remember my ears ringing so loud that I thought it was going to drive me insane, The room was spinning when I lifted my head off the pillow. I was so sick I couldn't even reach for the phone on the nightstand when it rang about 8 o'clock in the morning. I laid in that bed for four days and nights, getting up only to crawl slowly and painfully to the bathroom. On the second day, I picked up the phone to answer it, but my speech came out slurred, so my parents were called, and they came out to check on me. And even though I could barely talk, I convinced them that I just needed to rest, and they let me be. As I laid there, I believe the Lord began to talk to me. And for the first time in a long time, I couldn't move. I couldn't run from him. I just listened. At least that's how I look back on it today. The Lord said a lot to me during those four days, but nothing more clearly than this. Ricky, it's not about you. It's about me. And I cried for two days straight. Over the next few years, I learned how to read the Scriptures with a new eyes. I stopped seeing Christ as my coach, and I started seeing Him as the author and perfecter of my faith. I finally saw the passage where Christ tells the crowd, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And say, Come to me, and I'll give you work to do said, come to me and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke on you. Not so you can pull it, but so you can learn from me because I'm going to be the one pulling it. I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I remember reading that with new eyes and thinking, what in the world have I missed here? What is going on? For two years, I preached to my congregation, and because it was my experience of working hard, I told them, work, work, evangelize, go out. That's all I told them. I never told them about rest. And yet here in Scripture, the Lord's telling us to come to Him to rest. Remember the story in Matthew 19 about the rich man who approaches Jesus and asks Him what good deed can I do to earn eternal life? Isn't that an amazing question? Think about it. It's in our DNA, isn't it? You and I are not asking that question because we know better today. But if we're honest, we're listening hard because we want to know the answer to it. What do I need to do to earn eternal life? Our religious nature wants to take the bull by the horns and own it, doesn't it? But listen closely to Jesus' answer to the rich man. Why do you ask me about what's good? There's only one who's good. Wow, listen to that answer. That's about as clear as it's ever going to be, brothers and sisters. If you don't see it in that answer, you're not going to see it anywhere else. He told the rich man that there is absolutely nothing you can do to to earn eternal life. In fact, you're not even able to be good. Only God himself is capable of good. And then the clincher. If you would enter life, you have to come through the commandments. You have to come through the law. What? Really? Yes. The law was given to show you and I how inadequate we are. It was given to bring us to the end of ourselves. It was given to make sin more sinful. It was given to lead us to Christ because only he can fulfill that law. But the rich man was not at his end. He was still full of himself. So he says, well, I've kept the commandments. What do I lack? Wow, Jesus could have gone a million different directions with this one, couldn't he? have? But he could see inside the man and he knew exactly what he lacked. So he gave him a very simple answer. Now, he could have said, You lack the glory of God, because scripture says we all fall short of the glory of God. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what you lack. You want to impress God? Have his glory shine from within you. On your own, try that one. You'll impress God. It's the glory of God that we fall short of. But Jesus made it very simple. If you want to be perfect, Give everything you own away to the poor and come follow me. Now, the rich man, rich man couldn't do that. So the law became a light to shine into his soul. Now, are you thinking, well, I've done pretty good. What do I lack? If you are, you're still full of yourself. You haven't come to the end of yourself yet. But you will if you really give it a hard effort. You've lowered the standards of Scripture so you can find a way to justify your actions, haven't you? The Pharisees and the scribes had done that in Jesus' day. They had lowered the high standards of the law enough so that they felt capable of keeping them. So what did Jesus do early on in His ministry? We call it the Sermon on the Mount. He told the crowds, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the people in that day thought of the Pharisees and the scribes as the most holy people on earth. And here's Jesus saying, your righteousness has to exceed that. And then he quoted one of the commandments. You've heard the law. You shall not murder. And you know that if you do, you'll be found guilty. Well, I'm telling you that if you're simply angry with your brother, you'll be found guilty. And then he quotes another commandment. You've heard the law. You shall not commit adultery. Well, I'm telling you that if you simply look at a woman with lustful intent, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. He raised the standard back up so that they could see how inadequate they were. Okay, you figured out that you think you know how to keep the law? Let me tell you the spirit behind the law. It's so that you'll come to the end of yourself. If you just think bad thoughts, you've committed adultery. No matter how good you think you are or how good you think you can be, God will be there to raise the bar because it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Him. You'll never impress Christ with your efforts, no matter how well-intentioned. There's only one thing you can do that pleases God. That's to trust Him. That's it. When you're born again by faith in Jesus, you're clothed in Christ, and you take on His righteousness, not your own. And as you grow in His grace, you'll learn to walk in His righteousness. There's nothing you or I can do to add to this process. And there never will be anything for either of us to boast about except to boast in Christ. I'd like to invite the band back up to the front. We're going to worship the Lord together. If you're struggling with your Christian walk, if you're doubting your relationship with God, please know this, you're not alone. And you don't need to go it alone. Please talk to a brother or sister here. God is not waiting on you to get a better prayer life. He's not holding back until you read your Bible more. He's not growing impatient while you decide whether or not to get more committed. I encourage you to embrace His completed work in your life and begin seeing yourself. As the new creation, He's raised from the dead. You're a holy one who can boldly approach God's throne of grace. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Dear gracious God, we marvel at your wondrous work, how you've taken our dead bones at the bottom of the sea of iniquity and breathed life into us and raised us as new creations who are righteous and holy. You knew we couldn't obey the commandments, but you came as a man and did it for us. You fulfilled the law, then took our punishment for failing at it. You died on the cross, but more than that, you took all the sins of the world, And nailed them to the cross, never to be remembered again. But again, there's more. You nailed the law to the cross to die with you so that it no longer has any power or influence over us. And then the grave couldn't hold you. Three days after dying on the cross, you rose, the firstborn of a new creation. And then all those who believe in you rose from the dead, completely new creations with no sin, no shame, and no boast. It isn't about me. It's all about you, Lord Jesus. You've done it all. You hold the keys to eternity, and you hold us. Lord, open our eyes so we may see you in all your glory and power. Renew our minds so we may see ourselves the way you see us. It's all in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.
0: Thank you again for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We'd love to hear from you. If God is doing something special in your life, let us know by sending an email to info at lifejourneyva.com. Feel free to pass today's teaching on to any friends and family that you'd like, but please don't change any of it or charge for it. This podcast is made available for free as a ministry of Life Journey Church. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Have a great day.